0: Hello, you're listening to the Solid Word Bible Church podcast. Whether you're at work, driving in your car, or getting your workout on, we hope and pray that what you hear today will fill your spirit. Come, join us as we walk through God's Word together. Amen. Look, uh, just by way of introduction, and you guys know how I do, I, I like to just give you a window into, into my life a little bit that happens to resonate with the sermon. I, feel, I don't know what I feel like. I feel like I'm a talk show host or something here with the, with the cord and everything, so bear with me if I play with it. But um, one thing that I'm doing now, let's say now that I'm over 40, I've been over 40 for a couple of years, y'all, but uh, I, I've been really trying to take better care of myself. And wanting to be healthy and, and, and wanting to make sure that as I get older, I just don't just fall off the deep end, right? I, I just, you know, I know that I can't add an inch to my life or take away, but I can definitely determine a little bit the quality of that life. And so I'm trying to take better care of myself. And, and, and part of that is doing some research, like most people do, right? I'm not as young as I used to be, but I, and I can't do all the things I used to do. I can't go out and run a bunch of wind sprints and things like that and, and, and go play basketball and, and those kinds of things. So I've got to figure out what someone in my demographic should be doing that makes sense. And so I get online and I'm doing some research and, you know, there's an endless number of folks out there, fitness influencers and YouTubers and, and all kinds of folks, doctors and experts who have advice and have programs and have things to do. And I find that when I'm doing my research, I'm, I'm researching, it's a funny way to do research, y'all. I'm, I'm researching looking for someone saying what I already want to do. Now, look, I I told you, I I want to be healthy. I want to be in better shape, John. I'm trying to take care of myself. I I don't want Dr. Karen looking at me thinking, "Mm." well, you know what I'm saying? I want to keep everything moving in the right direction. She would never do that job. And so I'm I'm searching, and I'm seeking out, and I'm looking. But when I get online and I'm doing my research, I'm finding that I'm looking for a voice. The voice that I want to listen to is, is... is one that tells me what I kind of already want to do. Look, there's all sorts of experts, and there's all sorts of individuals. The experts all say, Bustle, that if you want to take care of yourself, you want to lose weight, you want to be in shape, then it's really two things, nutrition and exercise. Doctor whoever, nutrition and exercise. This other doctor, nutrition and exercise. This third doctor, nutrition and exercise. The, 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 the Institute for Healthy Living, nutrition and exercise. You gotta watch what you eat and you gotta exercise. But then there's some individuals out there who say, look, I lost 50 pounds <laughs> in one week and didn't do any exercise. And Fernando, for some reason, <laughs> let me click on that and see. Hey, let me. <laughs> they might be onto something there. That sounds like the plan I'm looking for. <laughs> Diet pills and tricks and hacks and shortcuts, right? And what becomes clear very clear yes. I'm looking to lose weight. Yes, I'm trying to take better care of myself. Yes, I want to be healthy, uh, and and I want all those things. But I'm also becoming aware of how I want those things. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and and this is the matter, right? This is this is the matter that's at the crux of, or, or this is the the the, uh, the the crux of the matter. Really, is that. I'm looking for something that resonates with what I already want to do. I don't want to change how I eat. I don't want to exercise, but I want to lose weight. So when I go out researching to find out how to lose weight, what I'm really doing is flipping by those folks who say, look. Centuries of of studies, data tells us, experience lets us know, uh, there's all sorts of studies that have been done that if you want to lose weight in a healthy, sustainable way, that it comes down to what you eat and how you exercise. But here I show up at 47, thinking I'm going to find a new way. I'm going to find a different way. A way that allows me to eat what I want, exercise if I want, how I want, how long I want, but still give me the results that I'm looking for. Now, I think if I was true, I think that that resonates with some people because right, that's a common, common place that we find ourselves in our normal everyday lives. Yeah, right. I want want this, I want that, but man, when I find out what it takes to get there, and I kind of want to go a different way because I don't want to go that path. I don't want to do that. And I think that this is exactly what Paul is warning Timothy about is on the horizon. This is what he's telling Timothy is brewing in the body. They're going to want the end result, but they're not going to want to go the way the Bible says go. They want to find their own way. So let's walk through this, right? And let's take our time, and, and, and I'm going to set up a little bit. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the canon and, and the context here for the, the book, and then we're going to get into the verses and kind of walk through what uh, Paul is sharing with Timothy. Timothy. Now, in the New Testament, right right after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have the book of Acts written by Luke, and it's the Acts of the Apostles. It records what the apostles did after Jesus descend, uh, ascended into heaven, and they were given power by the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 16 of the book of Acts, we're actually introduced to this young fellow named Timothy. Now, Timothy, is, we're told he is a disciple of Christ who was the son of a Jewish woman And uh, who was a believer, but his father was pagan, was Greek, and was not a believer. And we find out, right, that Timothy is well thought of by the Christians in the area that he's, he's living in, in Lystra and, and Iconium. Now, Luke shares also that Paul comes to this area where Timothy is, and when he gets there, the text isn't explicit about this, but I think we can kind of read between the lines, and I think it's fair to assert and to assume that Paul saw something in Timothy, or the Holy Spirit spoke something to Paul concerning Timothy because Luke tells us that when Paul gets to Lystra and to Derbe, that uh, he wanted Timothy to join his band, to go on the missionary journeys with him. He wanted Timothy to accompany him with Paul and with Silas and with, uh, with, with Silas and Barnabas and everybody who was going with him to go out and spread the word. There was something about Timothy that Paul picked up on. And this is around A.D. 50, okay? Now, I want us to get this picture in our mind because now you have Paul traveling from place to place. He's going from city to city, from region to region. He's preaching, he's teaching, he's establishing these churches, he's edifying the saints, and he's evangelizing the sinners. And all the while, young Timothy is with him. He's observing. He's participating. He's learning not only what missionary work is, not only is he learning how to plant a church, not only is he learning what effective evangelism looks like, but he's learning what it means to live one's life for Christ. Now, around three years later, they head to Ephesus and are there for about two years they leave, and then or somewhere around 60 62 AD, Paul then sends Timothy back to Ephesus. And he sends him back there to be the pastor of the church in Ephesus, to be the overseer, to be the elder, to lead that f- uh, f- uh, family of believers back in Ephesus. And while he is there, right, Paul writes at least two letters to Timothy. That's why we have first and second. Timothy. I say at least because we don't know if he maybe wrote more. We just have these letters as a part of the canon of scripture. And along with the letter to the pastor of the church in Crete that we call Titus, these letters that Paul wrote to Timothy and to Titus are commonly referred to as the pastoral epistles. And these pastoral epistles are different from the other letters that Paul writes because they are written to individuals, for one. They are to Timothy. They are to Titus, right? But they also are different because they specifically address the way in which the affairs of a local church should be handled while at the same time delivering some encouragement to these pastors as they deal with false teachers and as they also deal with other challenges to their leadership. This is why you hear a lot of preaching from these books during ordinations or during Pastor Appreciation Month, because it really deals with how a pastor, how an overseer, how an elder should operate within the church. But in Paul's second letter to Timothy, there is a noticeable personal angle, a personal touch to this letter. One that seems to be more reflective of the fact that Paul's relationship to Timothy is not just a, a hey, we're co laborers for Christ, but he actually kind of plays the role of a spiritual father to Timothy. Not just an elder pastor to a younger pastor, but almost a surrogate dad who's in the faith to this young man whose father was pagan. And this is likely due, this personal touch to this second letter is likely attributed to the fact that when Paul writes this letter to Timothy, Paul is sitting in a Roman prison. But this time it's a little bit different because he's actually awaiting his execution. Paul knows he's going to die. It's imminent. It is on the horizon. But in that moment... In that cell, Paul puts pen to parchment and he writes to Timothy with a concern that the true teaching of the Christian faith, that that which was passed on to Paul, that he then passed on to Timothy, that it would be preserved and in turn passed on and that Timothy would persevere in the faith that he would not faint, that he would not grow weary. Paul talks about some folks who started with him, who did not finish with him. He wants to encourage his spiritual son, this young pastor at the church in Ephesus, to continue to persevere in the faith and in the gospel ministry after Paul is gone. And with that as a backdrop, Paul encourages Timothy to be faithful in ministry. He encourages him to be faithful despite the hardships that will come his way and to be faithful in the face of false teaching. And that brings us to our text this morning, 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. And I think that it can be helpful for us to just get a little bit of a mental picture of what the writer is trying to communicate in the text, not just by way of words, but even by way of structure. And so when I studied this text, what jumped out at me is that Paul uses his instruction for Timothy. What he uses in here in these verses 1 through 5 is what I would like to call is maybe some bookends for what he is warning Timothy will start to do. So so verses 1 and 2, if you look at them, are the first half of Timothy's bookend. Verses 3 and 4 are focused on what people are going to be doing. And then verse 5 is the second half of Timothy's bookend. It's almost as if Paul is saying to Timothy, look, people are going to start acting funny when it comes to the preached word of God, but I don't want you to get thrown off, Timothy. I don't want you to lose your footing. I don't want you to get discouraged. You make sure that you stay focused and you stay consistent regardless of what people might be doing around you. So let's get into this, and and as we walk through these verses, we're going to look at three different things, and they are um, highlighted on your handout there. We're going to look at the charge verses 1 and 2. We're going to look at the change, verses 3 and 4, and then finally we will look at the challenge in verse 5. Paul begins this part of his letter, verses 1 and 2, right, with strong language when he says that he charges Timothy. Now, the majority of us don't use the word charge in this manner. I'm not saying that that word doesn't exist. It's just when someone says charge, well, we think in, in different other capacity and context than what Paul is usually using it here. But we are familiar with the use because in movies, typically, when an army is about to set out or a team is about to launch out on a mission, usually the leader or somebody will stand up and give that group their charge. In this context, right, a charge is a duty. It's a responsibility that they must obey. It is that thing that the group must do in order for their side to win. And the same thing is happening here, and actually more is happening here, when we look at the use of charge in this verse, where it typically implies a command that is, get this now, divine, constant, never changing perpetual, ongoing, and compelling. Now, some of you might be saying, wait a minute, Charles, I I was tracking with you there when you said that a charge is a duty and a responsibility, but but you've made a pretty big leap now from duty or responsibility now to a divine, constant, perpetual, ongoing, and compelling command. How do you make that leap? How do you make that leap? Well, I think Paul makes us make that leap because what he says is, he says, I charge you, Timothy is implied there in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Paul couches this charge, this duty, this responsibility in the omnipresence of God the Father. He couches this charge in the kingship of God the Son, Jesus the Christ. He couches this charge in the authority that Jesus has to judge both the living and the dead, which by all measures, I would argue and assert, are divine, are constant, are perpetual, are ongoing and compelling. And because Paul takes his charge, and he places it smack dab in the middle of the eternality and the authority of God and Christ Jesus, then we know that what he is about to assign Timothy must be heavy, must be important. It is no small thing. It is not inconsequential. It is weighty with ramifications and repercussions that must extend into eternity. And It also implies that God and Christ have a vested interest in this charge being carried out. Paul says, I charge you this, Timothy, in the presence of God and Jesus. I can almost hear Paul saying to Timothy, look, there's something that I need you to do, but I don't want you to think that you're going to get off the hook once I die. So I'm going to call on God the Father. I'm calling on God the Son as witnesses and enforcers of this assignment that I'm giving to you, Timothy. So we've established that the charge is serious, but what specifically does Paul charge Timothy with doing? Well, let's look back at the text, and we see in verse 2, he tells Timothy, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now, when I first looked at that, right, I was like, Paul charges Timothy with like five or six things here. So it's, a, it's a pretty extensive list, and depending on how you decide to kind of count and segment the verse. But then after spending a little bit more time with it, I, I kind of stepped back and felt more like Paul is actually charging Timothy with one thing and then describing to him how this one thing should be carried out. So what's the one thing that I'm asserting that Paul is charging Timothy with? Well, it is to preach the word. That's it. So, so simply, so plainly. And to get a more clear picture of what Paul means when he tells Timothy to preach the word, we just need to go back a couple of verses to chapter 3, verse 16, where Paul writes to Timothy, look, all scripture is breathed out by God. All of scripture is God's word, and it's profitable for teaching. It's profitable for reproof. It's profitable for correction and for training in righteousness. The word that Timothy is to preach is to be the Old Testament scriptures, the law, the Psalms, the prophets, and the letters and teachings of the apostles because they too were considered to be God-breathed. And they fit in the category of all Scripture. How do I know this? How do I know this? Well, if you look at 2 Peter 2 Peter, chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, Peter here not only places Paul's teaching on the level of apostolic teaching, but he also indicates that their apostolic teaching is to be considered the same way as the Scriptures, as being God-breathed, as being inspired by God. And Paul instructs Timothy... That in the preaching of God's word, that he should be prepared in season or out of season, whether people want to hear it or not, whether you've been invited or not invited, whether you're on the program or not on the program, you should be prepared to share a word. He should also preach God's word with the aim of reproving. These are old biblical words. We nobody talks about reproof anymore. What does that mean? That means to correct He should also preach it with the idea of rebuking to strongly criticize or express disapproval. Can I just do a timeout here? Our world today does not want rebuttal. Nobody wants to be rebuked. It's, it's to a place now where if I rebuke you and I'm not talking about craziness, I'm talking about, Hey, you might not want to do that. That's not best for you. Then some people say that even that is considered an act of violence than me telling you that, hey, that thing that you're doing could could be harmful for you. That decision that you're making might not lead in the direction that you think it's going to lead. It may actually lead you in a different direction, one that's far worse than where you think that you want to be. But Scripture says that, look, when you're preaching God's word, the intent should be to correct it should be to rebuke, to strongly criticize or express disapproval, not based on my opinion, but based on God's word. That's the context for it all. So it's not me up here talking about what I think and what I believe. And I, no, it's what thus saith the Lord. And if the Lord says this or that, then we correct according to that. We rebuke according to that but it doesn't stop there. And I love that Paul does this. He says, yeah, you should correct people. And yeah, you should be strongly criticizing and and expressing disapproval when their lives don't align with God's word. But the last thing you should be doing is exhorting them. That's another biblical word we don't use today. Exhort just means to encourage someone to do what's right. So in the same time that I'm pointing out, hey, look, that might not be the best option. That thing that you're doing is not going to lead in the direction that gives you life more abundantly. But I'm encouraging you. Here's what you should be doing. And you can do it with God's help and with our help and with the community around you and those kinds of things. And so Paul says, look, you should reprove, you should rebuke, and you should exhort. Hmm. And all of this, Timothy, should be done with patience and in an instructive manner. What does that mean? That means that when you preach and when you're teaching, you understand that folks ain't just going to get up and get it right away. Oh, let 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 me back up, because when I say when you preach and you teach, you're thinking, well, I'm not a preacher. I'm not a teacher. Yeah. When you share God's word with others, when you share God's word, parents, with your children, when you share God's word with your spouse, when you share God's word with your family members, when you share God's word with your classmates, when you share God's word with your coworkers, they're probably not going to just get it right then and there. Timothy is instructed by Paul that when you're doing this, do it with patience. And do it in the spirit of actually wanting people to learn, to get it not just so that you can slam your Bible, <laughs> Bible bookmark down on the table and say, I'm right, but because you want to help them see the rightness of it. Hmm. Secondly, we look at the change. Now, as I said, verses 1 and 2, they established the first bookend. And they present a picture of the intent, the purpose, the goal of the preacher when preaching God's word. And these verses serve as a stark contrast to the picture that Paul paints of what people will want from the preacher in verses 3 and 4. So let's just walk through this and see what's happening. First, for the time is coming. Hmm. I don't think that there is a better time in the history of a church than when it first starts. For those of you that have been with solid words since the beginning, yeah, you, you don't have a whole lot of fancy things. I get that. You, you didn't have all this space that you have now. You didn't have a space to call your own. You don't have a lot of bells and whistles and a lot of the fancy, you know, doodads and add-ons that we have now. But in the very beginning of a church, there's something special. It's a feeling that everyone who is there is coming for God's word because you don't have all this other special stuff, right? They're not coming for the programs. They're not coming for the ministries because that stuff isn't there yet in this season of a church's life, right? You know the people that are coming and the people that are joining show enough love God's word. Show enough love God, right? And show enough love his people, Hmm. And I think that this is a little bit of what Paul is warning Timothy about. The church in Ephesus is new. It's growing. Folks are being saved left and right. Lives are being changed. Oh, but Timothy, a time is coming. A time is coming when folks will start to get comfortable in their comfort. A time is coming when folks will begin to care more about the building than they care about the body. A time is coming, Timothy, when folks who used to pray for you will start to pray on you. A time is coming, Timothy, when folks who didn't grow weary in serving others will catch an attitude if they aren't the ones being catered to. A time is coming, Timothy, when folks who couldn't wait to get to church will be sitting there asking, when will this be over? And I feel like Paul is trying to warn Timothy that something is around the corner, that something is just over the horizon that you need to be ready for, Timothy. And I know, I know, I know that some of us may be sitting there thinking, well, preacher, that, that's, a, that's a, 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 a clever little thing you did there about, you know, oh, they wanted to get to church on time, now they can't wait for church to be over. But how can you kind of read that out of this text, How can you arrive at that conclusion? Well, I'm glad that you asked, listener, because I can show you something. Turn over to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Now, this book has a lot of symbolic and apocalyptic messaging and imagery in it, but the very beginning of the book of Revelation are letters from Jesus to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And in chapter 2, we actually find the letter to the church in Ephesus. Mm. And starting at verse 2, we find these words. I, this is Jesus speaking now in this letter to the church, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. What is it, Jesus? You just gave us a big, long list of good things. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Keep moving through this verse. Paul says, look, for a time is coming. People not being able to endure sound teaching, he says, right? When people will not endure sound teaching is the idea... That when Timothy does what Paul charged him to do in verses 1 and 2, that is to preach God's word patiently with the intent of the people understanding it clearly so that they are made aware of things in their lives that are displeasing to God and are encouraged to let go of those things and instead pursue that which is pleasing to God, that when Timothy preaches like that, the people won't be able to endure it. They won't be able to bear it. They won't be able to stand up straight up underneath the weight of the truth of God's word. And so they will buckle underneath the reproving and the rebuking. And they won't embrace the exhortation to do different. Instead, Paul says that they will have itching ears. These itching ears, or some of your translations may describe it as people wanting to have their ears tickled. But either way, it carries with it the idea of people wanting to hear something other than sound teaching. People wanting to hear something other than healthy teaching, wanting to hear something other than corrective teaching, wanting to hear something other than instructive teaching, wanting to hear something other than beneficial teaching. And if they want something other than the sound teaching of God's word, then it begs the question, what is it that they want instead? Well, Paul goes on to explain that these people instead of sitting under the sound teaching of God's word, that they will accumulate for themselves. They will gather to themselves. They will search out. They will look for, they will find, and they will attach themselves to other teachers, to other pastors, to other ministries that, the ESV says, suit their own passions. The King James Version says they're going to look for teachers that are after their own lust. The NASB says that they're going to look for teachers who are in accordance with their own desires. The Amplified says that they're going to look for teachers, I like this one, uh, to satisfy their own desires and support the errors that they hold. And the Common English Bible says that they are going to be looking for teachers who say what they want to hear because they are all self-centered. So bear with me. Let's put this all together. Paul gives Timothy a powerful charge. And it's rooted, this charge is rooted in the character and the power of God, the Father and God, the Son, Jesus Christ, to preach the word of God patiently, with the intent of the people understanding it clearly so that they are made aware of those things in their lives that are displeasing to God and are encouraged to let go of those things and instead pursue that which is pleasing to God. And he goes on to say, but, (laughs) but be forewarned, Timothy, that some of the same people who were shouting, do it, Doc, Preach, preacher. Make it plain. Paint the picture. Ease into it, doc. All that stuff that mostly I be saying. Y'all be quiet, but I say that a lot of times. When you were standing in the pulpit, Timothy, those that were rah-rahing with you will be the same folks who won't tolerate, who won't accept, who won't sit under that same preaching that's meant to correct and to convict and to encourage and will instead. Leave you, Timothy, and go searching for preachers. They'll go searching for teachers. They'll go searching for YouTube influencers. They'll go searching for podcast hosts and talk show hosts and hosts and authors and entertainers and therapists and psychologists and celebrities and musicians who instead of teaching the truth of God's word will teach that which aligns with what they already think, what they already desire, and that which they are passionate about. What they lust after. Hmm. And I want to interject here because I think sometimes when we engage with God's word, we have a tendency to say, yep, that sounds just like those folks out in the world. That's not who Paul is talking about. How do you know that, Elder Wright? How do you know that this isn't about sinners and people who don't know Christ? Well, I'll tell you how I know because Paul indicates that a time is coming when they won't sit under sound teaching. Well, those who have never come to faith in Christ have never sat under sound teaching. The expectation has never been that those who do not know Christ would sit under sound teaching. So so before we, we kind of stiff arm what the word is saying and say, that's right, world, you better get it together. This is about folks that are in the fellowship. This is about us. This is not about the world. This is about folks who have claimed the name of Christ. So what does this look like practically? Let's pull it out of the scripture and try to drop it into our contemporary context. It usually goes like this. Uh, A genuine spirit-filled preacher-teacher of God's word begins teaching on a subject or in an area, and, 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 and the biblical perspective about that subject or area rubs us the wrong way. Uh, you, you name whatever it is, finances, marriage, raising your kids, sexuality, roles of men, roles of women, church life, honoring one another, submitting, loving, what you, whatever. When he starts moving into that area, it rubs us the wrong way because it runs counter to either how we feel about it or what we want to do in that area. And instead of allowing the word of God rightly preached now, hear me out, to reprove and to rebuke and to exhort us, we begin to look for other voices on the matter. Now look, I'm not advocating for some kind of cult-like following and adherence to whatever is said up here. What I am saying though is that if we begin looking for other voices on a topic, we need to be honest with ourselves With why we're doing it, not fool ourselves. Because if we think that someone's teaching on a matter doesn't align with Scripture, if we think that someone's teaching on a matter is not proper exegesis of the text, it's taking something out of context, it's reading something into the context, it's not a proper interpretation of what is written and what has been understood. That text to have meant well that's one thing <laughs> but if we're doing it because we just don't like what the bible says about that thing or we just don't like how deacon patterson taught on that thing oh my and what that might mean now for me what that might mean now for my family. What that might mean for my friends. And, and we want to now find someone who is saying, like my health journey. I'm looking for someone that says, Charles, you can lose weight. Eating whatever you want to eat. And never exercising. Yeah, sign me up. I want to sit underneath that plan. Church family, this This isn't just a concern for the church in Ephesus, but it's a very real and present issue in the church today because we see it happening all over the place, from the individual sitting on the pew, leaving one local church and joining another, to entire denominations fracturing and splitting, all because people cannot tolerate hearing a gospel that doesn't conform uh, to all of their beliefs, That doesn't affirm all of their choices, all of their behaviors, and all of their actions. That doesn't always make them feel good at the end of service. That doesn't always put a little pep in their step and a little bit more. Oh, yeah, let's go. I can do and be. I can do all through Christ. But because some people don't want to be corrected. Don't want to be told, hey, what you're doing isn't quite right. And 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 especially then don't want to be told, but this is right. We have folks falling out. We have churches splitting. There's an old joke that says, uh, you know, that if there's a uh, Second Baptist Church, there was a first somewhere. Or when you see churches where it's like, you know, greater love, it's like, what are you trying to say? Who are you greater than, than where we left from? Hmm. So get this, so instead of, yeah, instead of correction, people want confirmation that their choices are right. Instead of conviction, People want comfort in the midst of their sin. Instead of accountability, people want affirmation that their lives are fine. Instead of repentance, people want reassurance that they are basically good people. Instead of righteousness, people want reinforcement that everyone must live their own truth. Instead of allowing the gospel to conform them to the image of Christ, people want to conform the gospel to their own image. And that results in a Jesus who only cares about what I care about, who only condemns what I would condemn, who only forgives what I would forgive, who only rebukes what I would rebuke, and who only asks of me that which I'm willing to give. And it's very telling, and it should be very obvious that if people are turning away from the Word of God, rightly preached and taught, the only place where truth and wisdom, and salvation, and life, and joy, and peace, and love, and contentment, and security, and strength, and blessings, and provision, and comfort, and encouragement, and confidence, and hope can be found, then the only thing that can be found anywhere else are myths made up stories, fabricated explanations, reasonings and rationales based in man's wisdom Hmm. and his logic. Consider something for a moment, If, if a God, Who is all-knowing, is all-powerful, is the creator of everything, is the sustainer of life, is the source of all truth and wisdom, whose love, whose patience and grace and mercy, righteousness and justice and kindness and forgiveness and faithfulness and wisdom are infinitely above and beyond our own or anything that we could even imagine. If that God were to communicate his desires, his precepts, his commands to people who at the core of their nature want to be in charge, of every decision that they make, want to be the God of their own lives, despite not really knowing what is truly best for their own lives, who do not want to submit to the will of anybody else other than their own, doesn't it make sense then that when we encounter the word of a God like that, that there would be some things that would make us uncomfortable? That there would be some things that didn't align with our self-centered perspectives. That there would be some conclusions that we had reached after a couple of decades of life on this earth that probably wouldn't be uh, in in line with what God knows who's been eternal from the very beginning. I was thinking about this yesterday, and it's, and it's, it's, it's crazy. We don't tolerate this in anything else. What is this? I I mean, folks who don't want to sit under sound teaching because it just doesn't comport with what they believe. Let me give you an example. Who would go to a doctor who said, well, I dropped out of medical school because they started teaching some things that I just didn't believe. And instead, I kind of found my own way to how to be a surgeon. Now go ahead and strip down and put on this gown so we can get busy. Or, or try this one, Let you get on the plane and you find out, you meet the pilot and you say, oh yeah, you're a pilot and, and, and that must have been a lot of schooling, you say, well, it wasn't as much as you think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I went to flight school, but after a while I realized that, that I just didn't believe, they were saying that certain things you couldn't do and you had to do and I was just like, well, no, that's your truth, I, I've got my own way of flying and so I just decided, I just decided that I was gonna determine how best to fly this plane. Y'all, look, you don't even have to buckle up, just get ready. <laughs> Do I need to keep, can I keep going? Do I need you get the idea? There's, Sister Melanie said, keep on going. <laughs> who who among you? Because <laughs> I was thinking about this last night. Who among us? Right? We trust, a bridge built by an engineer, and you said, oh, what, what college did you go to? Where did you graduate from? I said, well, I started at Georgia Tech, but then after a while, they started talking about two plus two is four, and, and five plus five is 10, and I just didn't feel like that that was the only right answer. <laughs> they started talking about you know Calc 1, Calc 2, Calc 3, 4, 5, but I felt like I was good enough with just Calc 1 and Calc 2, and, and because I had a passion for building bridges. It's in my heart. I, 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 I've known for a while that I just wanted to build bridges. I, I built it out of love. And so I just dropped out and I decided that I would just build bridges on my own. So go ahead now. Go on. And I don't even charge no toll. Get on across there. Yeah. Hopefully, what you see is that we recognize the absurdity in those situations, in those scenarios. And we're not even dealing with folks who are all-knowing. When you're sitting in a classroom, the teacher isn't all-knowing. They just know more than you about that thing. And what do we do? We sit and submit. We don't even quite, we take notes, highlighting. The teacher says, go buy this book. What do we do? Go buy the book. But for some reason... When we get in this place. Now, hear what I'm saying. I'm not talking about the world. Because you could argue, well, the world doesn't believe this about God. And the world doesn't this. No. Paul is not talking about the world. He's talking about us. For some reason, when we get in here and get into God's word, we get to read it. And we start to, mm, I just don't know about that. I just, mm, I just don't. Yeah. I just don't know. No. Not my God. Not the God I serve. Yeah, well, and then you, and then we have the audacity to then close up the book and say, "Well, I just believe." Well, I just believe. (laughs) Tell the IRS, "Well, I just believed (laughs) that I didn't need to pay any taxes this year." Right, (sighs) old family. Why would anyone want to pursue a myth? Why would anyone want to pursue just what some men got together and came up with because it made them feel more comfortable? Why would anyone want to risk their souls and, the, and wager their standing with God? All because God's word made us bristle. It it bumped up against some things that we thought were one way, but God is telling us, no, it's a different way. Actually, let let me help us out to push this even further. There actually should be rejoicing when you discover the truth about something. Oh, man, I've been doing it wrong all this time. I didn't realize it. But now that I've gotten into God's word and I begin seeing some things, now I'm, thank you, God, for pointing it out. It would be horrible for you to get to the gates. And then God begin to say, well, what about this? And what about that? And did you, and what about this? And what about that? And you'd be like, I didn't know. But he has left us a record. Right? Scripture says that man is without excuse that he has communicated to us that which he desires from us. Lastly, and finally, the challenge, and then we'll be out of here. Paul brackets this scenario in verse 3 and 4 with the second half of the bookend for Timothy. And he says, as for you, hmm. and then for my astute uh, Bible readers, right, this as for you statement echoes back into the Old Testament, Joshua 24 and 15 where Joshua challenges the Israelites to choose who they will serve. Moses has died. The previous generation has died off as well. They've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They're about to move into the promised land. And Joshua says, hey, look, (laughs) whether you think it makes more sense to continue serving the gods of your parents back in Egypt or not, you've got to decide is what Joshua says. Or if you're going to serve the God who delivered you out of Egypt is a decision that's sitting in front of all of you all right now. But he echoes that famous word. He says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I believe, just like Joshua, Paul is drawing a distinction for Timothy. Even though, Timothy, some people, some folks who used to be around, folks who used to sit in the same seat Sunday after Sunday, who used to sing in the choir, who used to serve as ushers, who used to volunteer in the nursery, who used to teach Sunday school, who maybe even used to preach alongside you, even though they are chasing after teachers and other doctrines that make them comfortable in their beliefs, in their habits, in their desires. And even if some of those folks were folks you looked up to, even if some of them were held in high esteem, even if they were respected, you went to them to get direction. Look, that's on them. But as for you, Timothy, as for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded. Stay calm, Timothy. It's going to feel like the cause of Christ is losing, like the church in Ephesus is dying. But keep your composure, keep your wits about you, Timothy. Don't lose sight of all that I've shown you, all that I've taught you, all that I poured into you. Look, as for you, Timothy, endure suffering it's going to be difficult. It's going to hurt as you watch people you did life with seemingly fall away from the faith. It will be difficult to watch people twist God's word to suit their own purposes and mislead others in the process. It's going to be difficult when some of those same folks, Timothy, begin to attack you as a false teacher. When they come back against you and against your character and against your integrity and even question whether or not you're saved. And it will be most difficult when those still in the church begin to pressure you, Timothy, to make a change, to get with the times, to modernize the message. But endure. And I really like what Paul is doing here because we can be tempted when we see what's happening when we see the trends that are happening in the world, we can be tempted to start running around and start trying to come up with schemes and plans and to counter what's happening in verses 3 and 4. We can start trying to turn down the volume on certain aspects of God's word, like sin and repentance, purity, holiness, sanctification. And then turn up the volume on things like love and joy and comfort and blessings. (laughs) We can bring in consultants and we can bring in focus groups and try to figure out how to make the gospel more appealing and how to make Jesus more relatable. Can I help us out? You want to make the gospel more appealing? You want to make Jesus more relatable? (laughs) Nothing makes the gospel more appealing than for people to realize that they are sinners. That's the only way the gospel is appealing. Some of you look at, you, you got frowned up faces. The gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ coming to die for your sins. If you don't think you are a sinner, the gospel is not appealing. So any teaching that I do that dances around the fact... <laughs> that we are sinners is why people then look at the gospel and say, Man, you want to make Jesus more relatable? Help people understand that they need a savior. Well, no, I want I want to know that He's just like me. No, you don't want a Jesus that's just like you. Because a Jesus that's just like you needs a Jesus that's just like God. Well, I, I, I want to know that he gets me. And I'm not, look, uh, okay, you want to know that he gets you. I want to know that he died on the cross for my sins. That's the crux of the matter. And when we try to dress it up any other way, when, when we begin fishing and baiting that hook with carnal bait, then it's no wonder the kind of fish we're pulling into the church. And then all of a sudden, when they get in, we start talking about, well, now you know there is such a thing as repentance. There is such a thing as holiness and purity. Well, that sounds like a bait and switch. Because that's not what you sold me when when we met on the street. And I'm not trying to be... Well, Charles said we shouldn't evangelize. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that the gospel and Jesus do not need to be sexied up. I don't know any other way to say it. I, I, I thought about it. I was thinking there's children in here, but I couldn't think of any other way to say it. We don't, it, it doesn't need to be glossed up. It doesn't need to be adapted for modern ears. It, it, we, we don't need to make Jesus more relatable. We don't need to make the gospel more relatable. It's The gospel and Jesus have been saving souls for centuries. And all of a sudden, now, we think we need an upgrade. We need to put a twist. Look, but, but this isn't everywhere in our culture. If you can't tell, I'm not even in my notes, uh, Patterson. It, it, this isn't everywhere in our culture. Everybody's doing a reboot of everything. Yeah, we're taking every story that's ever been told and, and updating it. And I don't care. Okay, you can do that in cartoons and television and movies. I don't need to do it for the gospel. Why? Because the problem hasn't changed. Paul tells Timothy, he doesn't need to do any of that. You don't need a focus group, Timothy. You don't need to be seeker sensitive. You don't need to be all these things. All you need to do is to continue to do the work of an evangelist. And to fulfill the ministry that God entrusted to you, Timothy. Continue to preach the gospel of Christ. Continue to teach the full counsel of God's word. Leaving out nothing. Glossing over nothing. Hiding nothing. Smoothing out nothing. Shining up nothing. Turning down nothing. Amping up nothing. Timothy, preach the word and let the word do the work. There is an argument and belief today that the reason that people reject the Word of God, this is my conclusion, y'all, as absolute truth, is because it is outdated. It carries forth ideas and notions, the argument goes, and restrictions and requirements that just don't fit our modern culture and our modern sensibilities. And as such, not only do people reject it, but they actually should reject it. They are right to reject it. And, And instead, right, the gospel should be uh, uh, updated and moved towards a more modern, more inclusive, more affirming, more non-judgmental version of the gospel. In other words, the word of God was embraced and accepted more back then because they weren't as enlightened. They weren't as forward-thinking and as progressive as we are today. And at first glance, look, look, at first glance on the surface, that sounds like a plausible argument. Scripture tells us, be careful of plausible sounding arguments until it seems plausible if you're ignorant of the Bible, until we consider that the text that we just went through was written to a pastor who is preaching in the culture that people today argue is more accepting of God's word. Do you you hear what I'm saying? Paul is not talking about some far off future time when no one will be able to stand God's word. Paul is saying a time is coming to be. How do we know it's not a future time? Well, it's, we, we know it's not a future time because he felt compelled to tell Timothy this. Why would I tell Timothy, the current pastor, about something that's going to happen after he's gone? So he's giving this warning to Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, you will see this happening in your midst. That in the midst of the culture, so to speak, that's more accepting of all of God's word, you're going to see that people will soon begin to reject it. That they will soon begin to push back on God's word and will not want to tolerate good sound doctrine. And what should become clear is that the issue then with God's word isn't that our culture today is more open, it's more progressive, it's more forward thinking, it's more accepting, even though in certain ways it is. But the real issue is that people don't want to be told that what they're doing is wrong. The real issue is that people don't want to be told That what they desire may not be good for them. They don't want to be told that God knows what is best. They don't want to be told that there is an absolute moral standard of what's right and what's wrong, that it's not relative. People don't want to be told that they are pursuing, that what they are pursuing won't bring them happiness. People don't want to be told that certain behaviors don't glorify God. That's true today. It was true when Paul wrote to Timothy. It was true when Jesus stood before Herod and Pilate. It was true when Joshua spoke to the Israelites. It was true when Moses stood before Pharaoh. It was true when Lot escaped Sodom and Gomorrah. It was true when people built the Tower of Babel. It was true when Noah told people that the flood was coming. It was true when Cain killed Abel. And it was true when Eve saw that the fruit was good for food and to make one wise. Since the garden to today, the way in which the culture manifests itself may look different, but the seeds have always been the same. Mankind, you and I, we want to be the ones who determine what is right and what is wrong. We want unrestrained freedom. We want to pursue and to fulfill our desires. We want truth that is shaped in our own image, in our own likeness. And when presented with God's word, we are tempted to look for a way out, to look for a loophole, to find at least one voice that echoes not what is right, but just what we feel. And if I can find that one voice, I'll latch onto that, and I'll hang on to that, and I'll ride that out. So if this morning you find yourself in verses 3 and 4, not able to tolerate sound teaching and doctrine, but you want to be in those bookends, verses 1 and 2, verses 5. Well, the opportunity now is presented to you. But it starts in a place that (laughs) is hard for us to get to. We have to admit that we've been wrong. We don't like doing that. Nobody likes doing that. To actually say, yeah, I was wrong. It's why we have such difficulty with people apologizing. You've heard people say, "Well, if I offended you in any kind of way, what is that? <laughs> or, or giving you a sleight of hand apology, uh, I'm sorry that, that, that you was offended by that. So it's, now it's your fault. Well, yeah, you could be like, oh, they're just heartless and cold, but let me tell you what it is. It's the kernel, it's the seed that's in all of us, that we don't want to be wrong. We want to be, well, not just we want to be right, we think we're right. And when we're faced with, "Mm, you're not right, it's hard for us to admit it. And that's the hurdle that stands between us being outside, being in group three and four, (laughs) versus three and four group, right? Versus being in the place where God says, look, I'm correcting you, I'm rebuking you, but I'm moving you to look more like my son, Jesus Christ. Yeah, I'm peeling some things away from you. But it's not because I, I, I want to control you, it's because I'm trying to give you life and give it to you more abundantly. <laughs> but it starts with us actually saying, yeah, I was wrong. Man, if you can't say that, you can't step across the threshold. Look, there is no forgiveness without the admission that there was a wrong committed. How can anything be forgiven if there's never a time when someone says, I transgressed and I need this forgiveness? And I know I don't want to speed past that because we often get to some things that we mentally can assent to. We, when I start talking about, well, all you got to do is believe that, that Jesus was born and that this happened and this happened, well, those are just kind of facts that you can kind of delineate and you can kind of get there. Yeah, Okay. I believe that. He was a carpenter. He, he grew up. There's historical. Yeah, I'm there. But we've leapt over. Repentance. Acknowledging. Yeah, I was wrong. And this thing, here's the thing about repentance, because sometimes folks who, who don't have a relationship with Christ feel like, oh, this is all about me, and I've got to stand up. and, um, Admitting that you're wrong happens the rest of your Christian life. Repentance is a constant, constant, constant element of the life walked with Christ. Why is that? Because the closer I walk with him, the more I realize how out of step I am with him. (sighs) And every time, I'm sorry, God. Forgive me for that, God. And it's it's so it's not this whole thing of oh, I gotta admit and and I'm the only one. No, you're not the onlyest one. Onlyest. That's that slipped out. So you see why Karen's the doctor and I'm not. <laughs> so let me let me. I'm not trying to be spooky or anything like that. But I I just feel that there is because I know how these moments go. That there's a rock and a hard place that's forming in people's hearts and minds. Even at this point, right? You you may have been able to kind of listen to the whole sermon, whether listening at home, maybe even here. But when it gets to this part, something different happens. A different wall goes up, a different shield goes up a different re- level of resistance goes up, right? And I believe that's because the enemy knows that, yeah, you can you can listen to a sermon, you listen to some gospel music, I don't have a problem with that. But when it comes to making that decision, when it actually comes to choosing this day what you're going to do, then all of a sudden, forces start working against us. If you're feeling that right now, I know this seems counterintuitive, but that actually means you need to be up here. And I say up here, but you need to be giving your life to Christ. Because there is a battle, there's a tug that's happening. And that that force that you're feeling is the pull of God, the conviction of his word, and the resistance of flesh and the sin saying, I don't want to relent you've been listening to the solid word bible church podcast and we trust that you've been blessed if you'd like to learn more about us you can visit our website at solidword.org thank you for joining us today and we'll see you next week